Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is journalist and author Stephen Levy. Hi, Jim. Stephen, great to have you here. Somebody whose career I have been following since long, long ago. Stephen has been following the personal computer and online world since damn near the beginning. The first book of his, which I read, was Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution from 1984, when hackers was still mostly a positive term. Indeed, that book, as far as I can tell, was the catalyst for the legendary Hackers Conference of 1984. Quite a who's who for the early days of computing and networks. He also wrote In the Plex, How Google Thinks, Works, and Shapes Our Lives, which I also read, and it was very prescient to my mind about the culture and power of Google. I made my own first visit to the Plex in early 2014, and it was stunningly like how Stephen had drawn it. It was like, wow. Okay. It's like I had been here before. Came from that book. In addition to his influential books, Stephen is a longtime top technology journalist. He's currently Wired's editor-at-large and has appeared in Rolling Stone, Harper's Magazine, Macworld, The New York Times Magazine, Esquire, The New Yorker, and many more. Today, we're mostly going to talk about Stephen's new book, Facebook. As always, links are available to Stephen's book, and to references, organizations, and articles that we reference in this discussion. Let's start with the unprecedented level and duration of the access you had to Facebook and to Zuck and his management team. Could you tell us a little bit about how it came to be and kind of how the relationship grew and changed over what period of time? Sure. So I wanted to write this book beginning, I think, in 2015. Uh, I actually, I can pinpoint the date. I think it was August 27th, 2015, when Zuckerberg posted that a billion people were online in the previous 24 hours on Facebook. And that had never happened before. You get a billion people for the World Cup. That's people just watching something. Um, They're not members of anything. They can't talk to each other. Uh, And this wasn't a spike. This was a baseline. Facebook was only going to grow. I'd been covering Facebook for a number of years beginning when it was just a college network. And it struck me that Zuckerberg's very ambitious plans were on the way to being fulfilled. And I wanted to document that. And the way I do that, you mentioned the Google book, is to dive in there and learn everything I can about this. So, you know, if I were doing a book without cooperation from Facebook, I talk to a lot of people outside the company. I try to talk to people inside the company, away from the campus, and, you know, people who have opinions about it. So I did all that stuff that you do when you don't, place doesn't cooperate, but I talk them into cooperating with me on the record officially, um, you know, and in exchange, they didn't get anything from me. Uh, I didn't show them the book till after it was printed. All the trees were dead and it was too late to do anything about it. So that, that was just a, a pure gain for me. And I told them that someone has to do this. Someone has to document this historical ascent of this company. Even if it isn't me, it should be someone, but it should be me. 
and they knew who I was from my track record. And I'd been covering Facebook and uh, they knew me to be trustworthy. They knew going in there that there would probably be stuff in there that they didn't like. They didn't anticipate that a few months after I started writing the book, Facebook would be thrust into a trajectory that put it in crisis and exposed a lot of their misdeeds, which of course I documented in detail, but I kept my implicit promise to be fair and delivered a book, which I think tells the story of Facebook. Wow. And as far as I know, nobody else has ever had this level of access. I've read some other books about Facebook and articles and they don't have the sense of I was there like this one does. Yeah, particularly when you try to get to know an enigmatic character like Zuckerberg. He doesn't trust people very easily. So uh, it really takes a long time for him to be candid with someone. And remarkably, the best two interviews I wound up doing with him ever were the last two interviews I did in the book when I was already writing the book. This is in 2019. Um, where I was able to ask him questions that normally he would walk out of the room if he got from someone. But he knew, because I knew the company so well, that he had to grapple with it. And he had to give me the answers as much for himself as to me. Very good. We will kind of weave through this to the degree that I can. You know, your insights into the nature of Zuckerberg. He's obviously a world historical person. And I suspect you have as much insight on him as anybody who isn't his family. Let's start with, in the book, early on, you dig into Zuckerberg's denial of the impact that Facebook maybe either had or didn't have in 2016 elections from the flow of misinformation. In fact, he called it a crazy idea at that time. You know, in some sense, as the book unfolds, that seems to be a pivotal moment when Zuckerberg's view, or at least his public pronouncement about the nature of Facebook became disconnected from the broader public perception of the impact and perhaps the duties of Facebook. You know, since then, perceptions have clearly changed. As you point out, investigations on multiple content, charges of breach of fiduciary duties with respect to privacy, huge fines, etc. Did this strike you as the pivotal moment in the unfolding of Facebook, or at least the later days of Facebook? The election was the pivotal moment. Facebook didn't change in one day, but the election exposed and made it difficult to ignore the things about Facebook, which were worrisome. Um, I think if Donald Trump wasn't elected president, this reckoning might not have happened. It certainly wouldn't have happened at this time. Uh, you know, as I get into in the book, there's plenty of events where people called out Facebook for privacy violations, for being cavalier about uh, the content on, 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 the, on the network, all sorts of things. But they managed to skate by it and not really pay the price for when it went wrong. It figured it can kind of go along and apologize for what it, what it, what it did wrong and going along in its merry way. But after the election, people took a closer look at what happened on, on Facebook and what was happening on Facebook and became less forgiving about it because they realized what an impact it, it had. Now, that particular statement by Zuckerberg came at a conference two days after the election. I was in the room when he said it. And it really didn't level the room to say when he said it's crazy to think that we affected the election. Um, you know, people were still digesting it. But what I only learned later was the day before that, 
there was a big meeting at Facebook and people were in tears and they were wondering, asking themselves, did we have anything to do with that? So in, in a way, he wasn't dealing totally candidly when he brushed it off because he knew from the reaction of his own employees that there was a concern about this at that point. And that same shock that the public had after Trump got elected and they said, well, what about a lot of stuff that happened on Facebook? Did I have anything to do with it? That was a question that was being asked in Menlo Park and the other Facebook offices by Facebook employees. Indeed. It's interesting to my mind that that highlighted to me what I took as sort of an implicit theme of your book, which I don't think you ever quite made explicit, which was that you know, Facebook started out in that era that was kind of congruent with the hacker culture, you know, spirit of doing something outrageous, but useful, you know, thumbing the noses of the powers that be, which we'll talk about a little bit later, how Zuckerberg kind of got sideways with the admin at Harvard, very slowly climbed a ramp in this hacker spirit. And if we think back, you know, you and I are old timers. We go back to the earliest days of the online world. I worked at The Source, which was the very first consumer online service from 1980 to 1982. Yeah, I was on The Source. Yeah, I was TCA080. That's how early I was. And, you know, if we recall, you know, the evolution of the considered responsibility of these platforms in the 80s, we had services like CompuServe, you know, The Source. I quit after two years. The Reader's Digest had bought it and stifled it and just didn't understand what they had. I up and quit and became an entrepreneur, quite a successful one, using the technologies to deliver information into professional audiences. But the consumer online world, you know, took off at a fairly good pace. CompuServe by the mid 80s had millions of users. And at the time, the ruling law was a case called Cubby versus CompuServe, which was a court decision, which basically entirely let CompuServe off the hook for what happened there, so long as it did not do any moderating, which is quite interesting. And that was the consensus, both of the legal framework and what we might call, you know, the hacker sensibility, which is, hey, these platforms are to allow people to get together and talk. And, you know, the biggest thing on CompuServe were things called SIGs, special interest groups, which are kind of a combination of a forum and a software repository and some other little features. I think they eventually had chat built into them and their multi-user chat. So again, CompuServe was really about interaction. They saw that way on, but the ethos of that time was not their problem what gets set on that platform. Then later, 1996, after a lot of lobbying and conversation on Capitol Hill. And, you know, I still remember a lot of that, you know, an organization I was, I think, member number seven of, the EFF, had a role in this as well. The famous Section 230, the Communications Decency Act, which basically gave platforms like AOL at that time, was still relatively big, and various other players, essentially immunity from what the people on their platform said, even if they did do moderation. Yeah, that, that, that was the key that, you know, I, I worked for Newsweek um, for 12 years. I was a, a chief technology writer. And I remember I had actually fairly recently gotten to Newsweek then. I, I interviewed Al Gore the night that passed, you know, I was, was writing about it for Newsweek and, and, we, and we talked about it. And that, you know, that, and that basically gave 
the platforms the right to do some moderation. As you point out, it was either before it was binary, either you hands off and you weren't responsible, or if, if you messed with it, then they could sue you and say, well, yeah, hey, you were moderating, so you are responsible. So now they were able to say, hey, we can take out things like hate speech or, um, you know, or threats or whatever, you know, can make it a safer environment for people and still not be responsible for vetting it like an editor at Wired would vet a story to make sure that we don't get sued because we are responsible for our content. And if we libel someone in an article in Wired, we have to answer for, for it. Not if you post something on uh, AOL you know, or later Facebook. So Facebook was a child of the 1996 Communications Act. Indeed. And, and I guess my point is that was the ethos of that time. Yeah. Yeah. But Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg had no consciousness of that at all when he started Facebook in, in, as a college network. And I actually get into the, the moment where that started become a factor. And it wasn't the engineers that Zuckerberg hired or Zuckerberg himself who became concerned about this. It was the people who answered the mail, the support people. And these were people who maybe dropped out of college uh, or just recently graduated from college, very early employees of Facebook who became multimillionaires just because they were lucky enough to walk you know, uh, up the stairs, Facebook's office in 2003 five or whatever. And they got these complaints and people saying, hey, here's so someone who's saying bad things about gay people. Here's someone who's you know, posting a, a naked picture of you know, revenge porn or, or whatever. Um, and they realized that Facebook had to be involved in this. And they sat around and, and just made some informal rules. It was almost like a, you know, uh, an ad hoc uh, agreement. And, and when you signed on as a new employee to do support, uh, the person next to you would, you know, give you advice and saying, hey, what should I do about this piece of content? Someone's complaining about it. And they said, well, there's a person wearing pants, no pants, take it out. You know, and, and from the informal rules, they eventually evolved into what's now like a 37 page set of community standards. And then there's a, you know, like a whole larger body of work, which gets into that in more detail, but that's given to tens of thousands of content moderators throughout the world to try to police what is, you know, the world's most active hotbed of discussion and bad talk too, you know, and, 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 and content, which is hate content, content, which is harmful content where terrorists try to put their, their work on there. Um, so that all came from that, from that informal discussion there. Yep. And you talked about that was, I thought that was actually quite interesting how it was essentially a shared editable text document that people just added into in an ad hoc fashion kind of interesting. But let's go back a little bit to the history of this. I mean, again, there were millions of people on CompuServe, AOL, even The Well didn't have millions, but had, you know, over 10,000 at its peak. You and I have both been a member of The Well for a long time. There didn't seem to be so much concern about so-called bad things. I mean, there were some bad things on CompuServe way back in the day, and CompuServe's view on it was, oh, well, we don't care. Not our job. And the source, where I worked, so I was more aware of how we did it, again, it was hands-off with respect to content, but because it was owned by the Reader's Digest, oddly, they were extraordinarily persnickety about George Carlin's obscene words. And so they had a you know, strict rule, can't say fuck, right? In fact, I got in a big 
argument and almost threatened to quit when the chairman of the source, a Reader's Digest executive, demanded that I take down from user publishing, one of my earlier products, a essay written by one of our users, which he was getting paid for, sort of a precursor of blogs, you know, a very humorous riff on all the various ways fuck could be used. You know, the Reader's Digest wouldn't have cared if there was a neo-Nazi group on the source, but they had, you know, classic old school fustity editorial control over the actual words that could be used. Uh, and so why did it, why does it make a difference today that we should suppress hate speech, say, when it didn't in, say, 1982? So this is, you know, the the benefit of, of going back and looking over the the history of company how how it evolves. So the the reason why that wasn't such you know like an alarming thing in the source or CompuServe or whatever is that there was no equivalent of going viral on those things. You know, um, Facebook built in the tools to allow certain kind of posts just to percolate, like, and this is a horrible comparison for our time right now, like a, like a virus, right? And, um, you know, one of their big product initiatives was actually named Pandemic at Facebook. It's the name of one of the chapters of my book that I wrote way before this happened. And um, Facebook thought that was great because Facebook was really obsessed with growth and to things that, that, that got people on the platform and, and drew them in there and had them spend more time there was great for growth and, and retention. So when things started going viral on Facebook, which happened because they would distribute posts, they'd rank them higher on your newsfeed um, if more people were engaging with it, and especially uh, people you knew, you know, that allowed things to get huge audiences of millions and millions of people. And businesses cropped up to take advantage of that. The Arab Spring took advantage of that. And Facebook thought that was terrific. That's fantastic. And never really seriously considered the consequences of destructive content being distributed widely and going viral on Facebook or and why it was more likely to go viral on Facebook than content which was upstanding and well-researched. So this was a consequence that at first they didn't think of and then was called to their attention that they stuck their heads in the sand and, and, and ignored because it, it didn't really fit the way they wanted the company to grow. Yep. Actually, I think that's interesting. And in fact, I might even go a step further and say they didn't really stick their head in the sand, quite the opposite, because they were so metrics driven and the key metric for a long time was engagement. They actually had a positive incentive, not just head in the sand, to tweak their algorithms. Yeah, they had to ignore the idea that, you know, you're absolutely right, that they that, that was the pursuit they're going. They had to ignore the fact that it they were encouraging the engine that wound up becoming a very efficient engine uh, of destructive content, which could erode democracy, for instance, um, and it could lead people to riot and and cause fatal riots in countries where Facebook didn't have anyone who spoke the native language. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily. Clearly, their algorithm was not optimized for badness, but what it was optimized for was high cognitive impact, right? You know, the sensational content—that's a term that Zuckerberg has actually used—is more popular. And they measure this than non-sensational content. That, that's, you know, uh, we know this, you know, look at like uh, what you put on the cover of a tabloid new newspaper. But if that dominates what you do and, you know, no one is checking to make sure that even truthful things are circulated widely, that's a destructive 
force on society. And that could help elect candidates who tell lies about their opponents. Yep. But again, I'm going to play a little bit of a contrarian here just for fun, see how you respond. You know, in the previous world, prior to the network world, you know, we had scurrilous pieces of shit like the weekly news of the world, the most outrageous, and then things like the National Enquirer, which had readerships in the millions that published blatant lies, ridiculous stuff. You know, Liz Taylor has a baby with an alien, right? Or, you know, on and on and on. Millions of people were reading scurrilous shit on these publications. And many of us who were, you know, sort of hardcore civil libertarians said, oh, well, that's the cost of free speech. And so there's a part of me from that old hacker culture. And you remember what hackers were like. You were one of the central figures in catalyzing the the hacker movement. And you remember the early days of online when the idea of censorship other than, you know, again, personal attacks, doxing, et cetera, would have been rejected by the ethos of online. And that the argument was the answer for bad speech was good speech, right? Right. Are we really sure that the feel of the need to censor is actually net good? Well, here's, here's the difference between the World Weekly News what, what, what happened in, in the print world with the World Weekly News and what happens on Facebook. And it's a design issue. It's not necessarily a censorship issue. It's, it's how Facebook handles it. So when you got the World Weekly News, and sometimes I would, you know, because a teenager, I'd take the subway into, into downtown Philadelphia and, you know, we'd go to a newsstand and we'd buy the World Weekly News and we'd read about the aliens and the, you know, the, the gruesome stuff, people with six arms or whatever. And it was all the World Weekly News. We knew it, what it was. It, the World Weekly News wasn't mixed in with the New York Times and other publications. And, you, know, you go in your newsfeed on Facebook, and an article from the World Weekly News universe gets mixed head-to-head with an article from you know, the New York Times or Wired or other things. And sometimes it's intentionally masked to look like that. They'll make up a publication like, you know, like the, the Denver Guardian. There's no Denver Guardian. It, it's the, you know, the, the address of the publication was a parking lot in Denver. But you won't be able to tell the difference between the Denver Guardian, which is a made-up publication, and the Denver Post, which is the newspaper in Denver. So that's the difference. The difference is that you can't tell from all the signals you get when you put in your 15 cents, you know, that we used to spend to buy the World Weekly News, and we knew we were going to get a romp, which maybe wasn't the most rigorous journalism. We knew that, you know, but on Facebook, it's hard to tell. And people take advantage of that to circulate content, which is intended to mislead. And then the next step is and to target it to people who are most likely to misinterpret interpret it or, you know, uh, or be influenced by it because of their particular biases. Yeah. In fact, I don't recall if you mentioned it in the book. I do know from my own readings on the topic that a goodly amount of the most clever disinformation in the 2016 election was actually done for profit by Eastern European and Balkan, you know, the famous Macedonian teenagers, right? They discovered that you could come out with the most outrageous shit about the 2016 election that was, you know, highly inflammatory, cognitive button pushing, get lots of reads and sell some ads, right? 
Facebook knew that, you know, and they, they, you know, when they looked into it, that's what they found. There was this little one particular town in Macedonia where a lot of people were driving very fancy cars because they got rich by, you know, taking a far right wing blog item, totally made up, and you know, like. Uh, the Pope endorses Trump or whatever. Hillary killed an FBI agent and making up a, a, a phony publication, you know, that it supposedly came from and circulated it. People clicked on it. There were ads and those people got paid for, for from the ads. Now, as it turns out, uh, they discovered that content which leaned towards the right, you know, which made you like dislike Hillary or not want to vote or whatever was more profitable. So there was more of that stuff on there. And then of course there was the Russian interference, you know, which they had their own reasons for circulating content, which favored Trump. But you know, you're, you're right by numbers. Most of it was for profit. Yep. And it was essentially an ecosystem. You know, again, it reminds me a lot of the famous town in, I guess, village and county in Mexico, where suddenly people were driving fancy brand new pickup trucks. They weren't into Mercedes then. The roads were too bad. And it turned out that this whole village was involved in building artifacts for World of Warcraft. You know, so when an ecosystem appears, somebody will figure out how to exploit it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. What's interesting is when Facebook, in the, in the last you know six weeks of the election, this really became apparent and face, people started complaining about it. Barack Obama, in a, in a rally for Clinton, you know, actually called out Facebook for this. And, and you know, Facebook, I described a meeting they had. Um, Sheryl Sandberg was, was on the phone and uh, there were the policy people. And taking the lead with the head of Facebook's policy uh, in Washington, D.C., who came from you know the Bush administration? He was best friends with Kavanaugh. People in that office told me that he saw his job as protecting the Republican side, and he said, "We're not going to do anything about it. We're not going to take this down because you know why offend the right?" Of course, it is difficult, right? How do you do it and and, and yet not remain a force for the left? Yeah, the complaint was, you're right, the complaint was, oh, well, we don't want to tilt the playing field. But the fact was, the playing field was already tilted. By taking out that toxic content, you actually would be leveling the playing field that was tilted, not by accident, but because the way Facebook was designed, it was vulnerable to being exploited in that sense. You know, Mark Zuckerberg didn't uh, intend to say, hey, I want, you know, uh, bad content to thrive, but he built it to generate interest and attention and keep people on there in a way where that was a, a consequence. And a lot of people called him out, people not being, not taking responsibility for fixing that when it became clear, you know, certainly clear by the end of that, that election cycle that it was causing damage. And there's another aspect going back to electoral advertising, which makes all online advertising different, but particularly Facebook, which is micro-targeting, right? Historically, if I ran an ad, and let's say I made a grossly racist appeal, I would get a lot of comeback as a candidate for running a grossly racist ad, right? Uh, I remember George H.W. Bush got a lot of swing back for his Willie Horton ads, right? He eventually won, but he took a lot of grief. The problem with micro-targeting is I can send those racist ads just to racists who aren't likely to complain. 
And I think that's something that the affordances that Facebook provides to all marketers, but particularly political marketers, fundamentally changes the game. Well, it doesn't fundamentally change the game, but you combine it with the cost advantage because you could do micro-targeting with direct mail, but it was very expensive. You can do micro-targeting on Facebook and it's really cheap and allows you to you know, send different messages to different people and not be held publicly accountable for your advertising. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 as you say, it, it doesn't change the game. It advances it. And then it advances it so far that it does change the game. I, I was saying that if you do the same thing at a, at a bigger speed and a lower cost, it actually becomes a different thing because you're able to, to use it in, in a sense where it affects the situation much more than if you did it at a lower level. It's like saying computers we use now in our hands are different devices than those things that we used in the, the early 1980s. So I think you know the, the micro-targeting becomes um, a very big issue because Facebook enables that to happen. And as you say, these political marketers can identify people who are susceptible to messages. So Facebook's model is to deliver advertisements to people who are likely to respond to it. And they argue, Facebook argues, that you should welcome these advertisements because they are relevant to you. They are going to give you buying opportunities uh, to things that you actually want to buy. If you're a fan of an obscure music group and there's some T-shirt that you never would have known about with, with, with this group's you know, logo on it, it'll find you and say, you know, hey, here's something that you will, an article of clothing you will love to have that you didn't know existed. And I've had that happen to me on Facebook and bought the T-shirt. But where it's different is when Facebook understands or, you know, enough about you to know where your weakness is and uh, then sells your contact to the people, give, allows the people to contact you to exploit your weakness. That's something different. Uh, people aren't so happy when they hear they're being manipulated by people. Um, you know, people are able to, to know their weaknesses and then exploit them. That's something different, a different character. And we're having a debate now about whether that's kosher to do in a political campaign. Some people think that Facebook or anyone else shouldn't be allowed to do that degree of micro-targeting in a campaign. Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. And as far as I know, Facebook is holding the line that they're going to allow it for the coming election. And I can tell you from some of my own sources that the Republicans, particularly the Trump campaign, have invested vast sums in running the most sophisticated ever social media-based election campaign and have raised a gigantic war chest. And in fact, part of their pitch to donors is specifically this. So it's going to be part of the 2020 experience. Yeah, you know, in 2016, they actually did run the best campaign, um, and by far. And the people at Facebook were uh, looked on in awe at how well the Trump campaign used Facebook, and they, you know, and Facebook also lent them help. They embedded some of their employees uh, in the campaign, just like they do for any big advertiser to help them use the platform better. They offered the same to the Clinton campaign. The Clinton campaign said, "Not nah, don't don't need it. Go away. You're not that important. You know, we want to do that." But the Trump campaign took the help, and and in a way that they didn't need it quite as much because they really understood Facebook and were able to do things like do on some days they ran 175,000 different ads to different people because they were able to 
tailor them to exactly what they thought those targets wanted. Hey, here's a person who's interested in gun rights. Let's get a gun ad to them. Here's a person who's anti-abortion. Let's do that. Oh, here's a person who's an African-American. They're probably going to vote for Trump. Let's send them something to get them sick of the whole system. So maybe they won't vote. So they were able to do all these different ads to people that, you know, uh, to be very effective in helping on election day. Yep. And they're going to do it even more this time, I can tell you. Though I will say one thing that has changed, I do a little bit of promoting of my podcast on Facebook, and I was getting a fair number of my episodes censored by the advertising clearance engine at Facebook because some of my episodes, maybe 15% of them, are sort of political right? And they now require you to register as a political advertiser if you're going to run political ads, and you have to put a check on the ad if you believe that it infringes in the political space. And so I actually went through the process of registering as a political advertiser on Facebook. And when I have an episode that is explicitly political, I'll check the box. So unlike in 2016, Facebook knows what is a political ad and what is not. In 2016, they didn't know or care. So at least in theory, and frankly, I don't know whether they're doing this or not, but they should, it would be really helpful to, shall we say, the hygiene of political discourse if Facebook published every ad that was run with the political checkbox next to it and the micro-targeting filter that was applied to it so that public interest people, obviously citizens aren't going to do it, be too much data, but you know, public interest groups, if only the opponent could go through this and say, huh, you know, Biden is uh, you know, appealing to black nationalists with an obviously racist meme, or Trump is you know, appealing to neo-Nazis, but doing it in a surreptitious way that only neo-Nazis see. So that one reform alone could be quite helpful in letting you know, the immune system of discourse and journalism and, frankly, even competition identify abuse of micro-targeting. Well, actually, they they do that. They they you know when you click check that box and you know you that that stuff goes into an archive that in in theory could be searched. Um, you know, there's a question about how you know great the tools are to search it, and you know, can how what kind of access research groups have to that archive. But you know that that's the theory that you know that anything in political would be able to archive. And and then when they first did that. Media outlets were outraged when they would do articles about political things, and and Facebook would say, "Well, that's that's political." And say, "Wait a minute, we're not political. We're we're news." And you know, I think Jim, you know, it's interesting to see what would have happened if you pushed back and said, "I'm a news source. I'm not a political source," uh, because there was a big fight within Facebook. The people who work with journalists in Facebook in the Facebook journalism project, we're saying, hey, we really can't do that. And then we're going to get a lot of crap from journalists and journalists and publishers. And and that's what they did. And Facebook did pull back a little from that. But it is difficult to determine what's political and what's not political when it's not a campaign actually taking out the ad. But, you know, it could be like a, a, a podcast with someone who may lean left or right, that that's okay. Um, you know, there's publications like that. Um, uh, or it could be a publication like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or even Breitbart that says, you know, well, this is, you know, uh, an editorial we're running. So it, it gets into murky grounds. Yeah, it does. And frankly, I had that thought, but 
at the tiny level I advertise, clearly I'm just being filtered by machine, and it wasn't worth my time to go argue with the goddamn Borg, right? And trying to deal with Facebook, it's impossible. There's no way to get a hold of anybody. It's just a fucking nightmare. So I said, all right, I'll go through the process and get registered as an advertiser. But you were right. Probably I could have fought the fight, but it wasn't worth the time. Let's change directions here a little bit. This has been extraordinarily interesting, but I'd like to, you know, sort of focus back a little bit on Zuckerberg, the person, and how he evolved both as a person and his character, and how Facebook evolved from earlier things that he did and and kind of came up a slope a little bit at a time. One of the things that, you know, struck me when I read the book and then went and researched it again to create my topics for the show was damn, Zuckerberg was born in 1984. He's a baby, right? I'd already left the source and started my first two companies by 1984. I guess he's the king of the millennials, which I think in itself is interesting and something us geezers need to keep in mind when we think about Zuckerberg, that he is, if not quite an internet native, he's certainly an online native. And I think that's something well worth keeping in mind when we think about Zuckerberg. How much of that came through in his personality, that he was an online native? Quite, quite a lot, right? In you know, 1984, you mentioned, well, that, that's when my first book came out, and that's when that Hackers Conference, which was indeed generated by, by my book, that was my book party, that Kevin Kelly and Stuart Brand and the, and the people whole earth through after they did that book. So he grew up as an AOL Instant Messenger kid. And he was always building projects and thinking about what to do. He built some projects on top of that. Um, he built a, a product that was very much like based on Synapse, which was uh, or it was called Synapse AI. It was based on um, WinApp, which was the music player which AOL bought, and that was very much his frame of mind. And then and all the stuff on the, on the internet and, and the web. Very, He grew up using web-based tools, and that's why he was able to build Facebook so quickly is because he understood in a way that maybe an older person wouldn't have understood that you could build a, an application really quickly, and it could be really powerful. It could be updated really quickly um, using some of the brand-new tools of development which had come out along with the popularization of, of the web um, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that really framed the way he thought about things to the degree that when the mobile revolution came six or seven years later in around 2010, 2011, uh, Zuckerberg was caught short. He was like more of a web person. And his generation was a little behind in mobile and Facebook got cut short and had to really re-gear itself in order to build itself into a mobile company. And that was in part because Zuckerberg's mentality was the web. Interesting. And that reminds me a tremendous amount. As soon as I read that in your book, and I remember the history of it, and part of the expenditure of a ridiculously large sum of money for WhatsApp was about closing that gap. It reminded me a lot of Gates, Bill Gates, right? Mr. PC. He was amazingly blind to the internet, right? Right. And they famously famously had to call an all-hands meeting and refocus the company on the internet, but they did it years late. And you know, very, very similar, though unlike Microsoft, Zuckerberg did make the change in time. I was amazed watching their percentage go from web-based to app-based. just was like a rocket ship very, very rapidly. Now, another thing that you mentioned, I believe about a dozen times in the book, is 
that Zuck was a great gamer, PC-based games, in particular Civilization being one of his favorite games, but also Risk and a bunch of others. And it resonated with me because I've been a gamer since I was 10 years old, back when we played Avalon Hill war games on tabletops and have gone through all the evolutions. In fact, I recently had created a phone-based game, which is out for beta test right now. So you mentioned it a dozen times. So you must think that Zuck's interest and saturation in games, particularly civilization, is an important insight into his personality. Right. I, I think it's telling the kinds of games he gravitated to, um, though I'm sure he's not, not a stranger to shoot 'em ups He really loved the, the, the games where you built a society um, and ran a society. And, you know, he plays board games, too. And Risk was one of his favorites, he, well into adulthood. Um, and as you know, the point of that game is to take over the world. And when he first started the Facebook, which was what Facebook was called when he launched it at Harvard, Within a couple of weeks, he was already gearing up to move it to other campuses after he released it in Harvard. So the whole world of universities became his risk board, and he went from one to another. Some of them already had similar systems working, um, but he would take them over just like you take over a country in risk where maybe some pieces are already on there from one of the opposing players. It was a good window into his mind. Yeah, I, I actually I noticed that when I was doing my content prep for this call, you pointed out that the first college that he went after after Harvard was Columbia, which seemed counterintuitive because it already had a similar service. But a game player might well say, you know, hey, I want to attack that entranceway into Australia in risk, right, rather than go grab some cheap territory in Mongolia. Because, you know, two things. One, I want to crush an early opponent before they can get bigger. That's game thinking. And second, in the metagame of business, you strengthen yourself by competition and testing yourself against others and learning faster than the other guy. So I would say, you know, Zuck probably did internalize a lot of very useful lessons from gaming. I know I did. I mean, I, people ask me, what are my influences in my business career? And I'd said, wargaming was certainly one of the top three or four. I was impressed by the fact you know, how, how often you, you brought that back and wove it into the storyline. Now, another question that really jumped out at me again, particularly as I was reviewing my notes, that Zuckerberg took a consciously elitist educational approach that seemed kind of contrary to his own interests, kind of demanded that he go to Exeter and then Harvard. He always wanted to go to Harvard rather than what would have seemed more natural, Stanford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, University of Michigan, University of Texas, one of the universities more well-known for its computer science department. Did you get any insights uh, or you know, motivational sense of you know, why this kid, who's clearly a nerd and a geek, would sort of forcefully pound the table for the Exeter-Harvard route rather than the you know, public high school MIT route, for instance. Right. Well, the Exeter, you know, he had heard about the, the they have a great computer program there. And, you know, and he, he went in his freshman and sophomore years of high school to the public high school uh, in Westchester County, which wasn't a terrible high school. Um, but uh, he exhausted all the opportunities he had for uh, learning about computers there. His mother wanted him to go to a closer private school, Horace Mann, where he can commute. And she didn't want him to leave the house. His older sister was going off, actually, to Harvard. 
and she didn't want to lose two kids uh, the same year. She wanted to have him around for his high school years. And he said to her, I'm going to Exeter. And he, he said, she said, well, why don't you just at least interview with Horace Mann and maybe you'll like it. And he said, I'll interview with him, but I'm going to Exeter. And he went to Exeter. Now, the Harvard thing, um, I think maybe because his sister went there, he knew people. He also was interested in some non-computer things. He took a lot of psychology courses and he was interested in the classics and Latin. His hero was Augustus Caesar, another conqueror. So I think that's, that's the best I can get to why he wanted to go to Harvard. Um, he had a, a Harvard pennant in his room at Exeter, someone called me, which was interesting. But you're right. It, it turns out that you can make an argument that he might have been happier at MIT or Stanford. He was always building things. And Harvard wasn't really friendly to people who were entrepreneurial. They were close to Stanford or MIT. And, you know, I talked to other people there who, you know, had an entrepreneurial bent and they felt the, the school didn't encourage them. And, you know, when, you know, Zuckerberg got into a spat with some other people, you know, in terms of their companies, and this has sort of been documented not 100% accurately in this movie, Harvard really didn't want anything to deal with that. You know, they, they, that, that wasn't their DNA. Yeah, that, I, that came up again and again. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I'm going to take a little sidebar here because you mentioned it. You know, I did not have any idea until I read your book that Zuckerberg's hero was Caesar Augustus or Octavian, as he was known prior to his ascent. And that really struck me. I said, you know, there's something about Zuckerberg that reminds me of Octavian, right? He even looks sort of like some of the younger statues of him. I wonder if he is consciously grooming himself to be the Octavian or the Augustus Caesar. And people who don't know the transition between the Republic and the Empire, Octavian was this very unlikely character when Caesar, Julius Caesar, was assassinated at the Senate by Brutus and his friends, as laid out somewhat accurately, I suppose, in the Shakespeare play Julius Caesar. It had been publicized but not well known that Caesar had recently made Octavian, this 19-year-old distant cousin, his heir. And all the power brokers of the world thought this little punk could be pushed aside. But guess what? This little punk was smarter, more ruthless, but quiet and low key than the rest of them. And he ended up killing them all off over time and becoming the first emperor of the Roman world. For someone to choose Octavian, Augustus Caesar, as their hero is kind of a very interesting choice. Yeah, yeah. Now, to the point where... You know, he went, um, I think it was his honeymoon, uh, to Rome, and he dragged his wife to all these sites that, you know, where Octavia went and, you know, the museums, exhibits about this. And she complained that there were like three people on the honeymoon, you know, she and Zuckerberg and Octavia Caesar, Augustus Caesar. That's amazing. And I think that's that's something worth considering because you know again in a historical context you know octavian or you know augustus caesar could be thought as comparable to you know a napoleon or a hitler or a stalin right only more successful than any of them so i mean it's a very, very odd choice to be your hero exactly he wasn't a warm fuzzy guy yeah not at all i mean he was a cold stone killer including you know his own children his wife you know uh, well i don't think he killed him you know, he exiled them till they died, basically. So he had a real, real cold and tough guy and 
conquered the world, basically took over the biggest empire in world history at that point. So the next point, and you alluded to it, which was from the very time he got to, even in late high school, but particularly the time he got to Harvard, Zuckerberg was a relentless, small-scale web developer being paid by other people and entrepreneur trying all kinds of stuff in a rather non-Harvard-ish kind of fashion. And that did put him a little bit sideways with Harvard. And as you point out, MIT or Stanford wouldn't have cared. You know, I was I went to MIT in the early 70s and the culture there was, man, you had to do something pretty bad on a computer to get into trouble. And, you know, the first time he came to the attention, I think, of the authorities was he created something called Face Mash, essentially a juvenile takeoff on hot or not. And it had a lot of the hackerish aspects, you know, scraping photos off the official face site, not concerned with privacy or permissions, et cetera. But it was within the spirit of the hacker ethos of that time, I'd say. Yeah, it was. But um, Harvard didn't have much of a sense of humor about it. Um, and I think it was a combination of that he violated their security rules, you know, uh, by working his way into the computers of the other houses, these residential houses um, that Harvard organized in, in order to scrape the, you know, the, the databases to get the pictures. Um, but also, it was a very politically incorrect thing to do. Um, the, the women's groups at Harvard complained that they were being objectified, you know, which they were. And uh, so there was a lot of pressure uh, of Harvard not to ignore it. Um, and of course, the, the, the rules he violated weren't free speech rules, but were rules about not breaking into computers and, and getting the information. Um, and the lesson he learned from that was, hey, don't do it again. If I'm going to build my site, that is a community site. I'm not going to steal the information from Harvard. I'm going to make people bring their own. That way, there's no privacy issue in, in terms of that because the people have provided it themselves, about themselves. I got them to do it for me. In fact, you mentioned the earliest days of the Facebook, this is a direct quote from your book, that the Facebook, the precursor to Facebook, offered more privacy protection than any other social networks of its time. So he did learn the lesson, even if it might have been cynically. The other thing I thought that was interesting was you talked about the hearing that he had before the deans, et cetera, and he was given a slap on the wrist. And the actual charge was something like improper social behavior, odd and Harvard-esque kind of charge. Zuckerberg and his social skills, right? And you, you mentioned again, half a dozen times at least, the Zuckerberg trance. Really, apparently quite off-putting, go on for minutes. And you quote one of people who knew him really well as he falls into and becomes the Eye of Sauron from Lord of the Rings. What are you willing to say about Zuckerberg's social skills and social aspect? Right. Well, obviously, he's evolved quite a lot from, you know, like a 19-year-old, you know, who was socially challenged in the early years of Facebook. Uh, as a leader, he would get very nervous he, uh, addressing even his relatively small team and in all hands. Um, but he has the, had this habit of sometimes you'd ask him a question and he would just stare at you. That's what happened the first time I met him in 2006. Um, and it's very unnerving, let me tell you. And you wonder whether there's something cognitive going on there. But it turns on he's just processing things and he does it less now. But sometimes when you ask him a question that he didn't expect, 
Um, there's never an answer ready. They'll give you that look for a little while, um, but nothing like the like minutes long pause that makes you go insane that uh, he used to have when he was a younger person. Was it really minutes long or did it just seem like it? Maybe it seemed like it, but sometimes I think, you know, you would be, be approaching that. Like, I mean, like really way beyond what you're used to in terms of uh, one-to-one interaction. Multiple people describe how, how they went insane when that happened. People like Don Graham, who was the CEO of the Washington Post, actually he was my boss at the time, and uh, Roger McNamee, it happened to uh, a lot of people. I did. I interviewed him once at the end of 2006 at a conference, and I asked him a question, and here he is on stage, and he didn't answer the question for minutes, and people are getting nervous in the audience. They're like nudging each other. Hey, what's going on here? What's going on? So it, it really is something you don't forget. That's interesting. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Like you, I've never experienced that with somebody. If I ask them a question and they, let's just say 60 seconds, just sit there and think about it before they answer. I suppose at one level, it could be a mark of respect that he takes your question serious enough to think about it for 60 seconds. But on the other hand, it seems like, you know, missing the normal social dialogue cues. I think, it, it, yeah, it's like he didn't want to play that game in a way. I mean, he was willing, you know, to take whatever he, you know, that, like that happened, you know, he, because it was it, the way he wanted to behave. You know, he wasn't going to bow down to the, the niceties of social interaction. He was, he, was, he was okay with himself being that way until really he had the responsibilities of a, of a CEO and he became an adult. And you don't see that uh, with, with him so much. You know, that, I once had that treatment from Bill Gates. So I once, in 1996, I believe, I was doing a, a story, the first story about the browser wars. And I went and visited him um, in his office and you know, gave him a long, complicated opening question about the browser wars. And he gave me that silent treatment for a long time. And, you know, there was like this like dead space in the room. And, you know, I just finally asked him another question. Did he never did answer? Well, he did. He did. I think he was more conscious about doing it. It was a more of a tactic of saying, you know, fuck you. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to answer this now. And then he, then he did later. He remembered it. You know, at some level, that seems a little kind of lacking in social skills on Zuckerberg at that time when he was at Harvard. But on the other hand, Something that struck me as showing great social intelligence, if in a Machiavellian way, was the way he played the Harvard Crimson. Again and again, he got the Harvard Crimson to do a fair amount of the work for him. Yeah, yeah. It was like covering Zuckerberg for the Crimson was like, you know, the way, you know, like a a publication covers Silicon Valley. He was the Silicon Valley of Harvard, single-handedly, you know, know, and they would, you know, uh, obviously came to their attention after that face mask issue. Um, but you know, they would write about his various projects and when they wanted someone to comment on something, you know, like about you know, the web and products, you know, like they would like fall to him. And, and even after he left Harvard, uh, obviously they covered the Facebook, uh, really, really closely. And, you know, we went out and visited him in Palo Alto. Masterful public relations for a you know seventeen or eighteen year old kid. I was impressed. I was never very good at public relations, and he was way better than I ever was. I'll say that when he was a pup. Also at Harvard, again, it was the subject of that you know not entirely accurate movie. I forget what it was called. Was it called The Social Network? Maybe. Yeah, The Social. Network. Yeah, yeah. 
you delve into to some degree the you know the story of the Winklevoss twins, Greenspan. Was Zuckerberg over the line and ripping them off? Or was it the hacker spirit of sharing ideas and seeing who comes up with something? What's your take on that, if you don't mind? Yeah, I, I didn't want to dwell on that, you know, too much, but uh, I, I had to look at it and really, um, you know, fashion, you know, do my own research. And and we, there's a couple points there. One is that the Winklevoss twins were not going to create a, a product that took the world by storm. You know, they were pretty clueless about how they were doing things. You know, they've been, you know, like talking about the thing for a year. Um, it wasn't an original idea. Um, you know, Friendster was already out. Um, lots of campuses had their equivalent of a Facebook. So it wasn't a brilliant idea. There was something even on campus. You mentioned a guy named Greenspan. He had his own product. Um, but what Zuckerberg did do, which, you know, was uh, deceptive, was he said that he would help the Winklevoss twins and the other guy um, for Connect You is what they were calling it, originally Harvard Connection, to code up their program. It's sort of telling that the the key person in, you know, uh, that, they, that these people wanted to do, um, you know, was just someone they would hire, you know, and as you know, like a jobber, you know, um, you know, they didn't really have the skills to do that crucial stuff themselves. And the design really was going to be everything in terms of the success. Um, and for two months, he said he was working on it and he really didn't work on it and he dragged his feet on it and he actually shared with some other people on instant messaging that that's what he was doing, that he was slowing them down. But you know, the two months difference that it made for Connect You wouldn't have made much difference anyway. They, they had someone working on it before they didn't do anything. They had someone working on it afterwards that didn't do anything. So as it turned out that Zuckerberg messing them up for two months was the best thing that ever happened to them because they wound up getting millions and millions of dollars in a settlement. And uh, of course, they griped that they should have gotten more. But I think it was like a total bonanza for them. And it's just absurd to say, uh, as they are saying, and their biographer keeps saying, you know, I guess another book out about them, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg, had it not been for Mark Zuckerberg, that's ridiculous. I do give him some credit for being on the Bitcoin thing early. Yep. Yeah, that, that seems like a reasonable take. I mean, it does strike me, having read it again in your book, that Zuckerberg was a little more duplicitous than one might like. However, the probability of the Winklevoss twins and friends actually having created Facebook, particularly when you look at all the odd luck and right place, right time that Facebook had with exactly the right product idea, seems unlikely. Yeah, there's an extraordinary number of people who have been made like super rich, certainly simply by being around or involved with Mark Zuckerberg, who like spend a lot of their time complaining about it. That's what I found. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's my next question was going to be people who were around very tightly with him early, very tightly, more tightly than anybody. And what's their take on Zuck? Hughes and Moskowitz. Did you get a chance to talk to those guys? Yeah, Dustin Moskowitz, who was probably the closest lieutenant in the early days of Facebook, and he turned out to be a really a, a great executive, a, a CTO uh, for Facebook in the early days. When he left, he has never been on the record as trashing Facebook. Um, um, there is probably clues that he's not thrilled to the direction that Facebook took, but uh, you know he has a I. 
there's a possibility, and I don't know because I actually I didn't talk to, to Dustin. He, you know, and I think it's telling that he didn't talk to me. Maybe because he didn't want to have to ex- express what he thought of Facebook, or maybe he just didn't want to talk to me. But uh, maybe he feels this guy made me one of the richest people in the world. It'd be ridiculous for me to trash him. Other people didn't have that problem. Chris Hughes, um, you know, walks away with hundreds of millions of dollars and has no problem, you know, for for basically doing something that nothing, not extraordinary at all. You know, what he brought to to, to, to to Facebook, he was basically answered the phone and for press stuff and, um, and, you know, and did some other things which, you know, weren't extraordinary, but, um, he, you know, he was lucky enough to be involved as a, a founder. And, um, now he's going around, you know, saying that Facebook should be broken up. I don't know. I mean, you know, you're allowed to express your opinion, but it, it doesn't seem like a great karma thing to do. Uh, it's not giving back the money. That's the thing. If he said, you know what, here's that $500 million. I'm going to give it all to charity. I'm going to live like I would have lived otherwise, right? I'm going to give up this, my nice house in Greenwich Village and the nice house in upstate New York and, you know, all the other money I have and, you know, uh, uh, because it's dirty money, it's blood money. They don't say that, right? And, you know, uh, so I, I think that, it doesn't seem kind to me. I don't know. Yeah. Although I will did notice that there weren't too many people that stuck with Zuck or that he stuck with for, for very long. I mean, he went through cleaning house. Yeah, there, there are some, he went through cleaning house after Yahoo tried to buy Facebook for a billion dollars and Zuckerberg didn't want to do that. Zuckerberg eventually kept Facebook as we know, but he made a point of making sure that a lot of the people around him who were telling him, sell, 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 were gone after that. Yeah, that's the Octavian in him, right? <laughs> you're either with me or you're not. And that's also, you know, I have to say that was a, a tremendously huge Octavian move was to turn down a billion dollars when it wasn't at all clear that your business was worth a billion. But he saw it and he said that if, you know, he, I think he saw that if he could stick his ground and just relentlessly focus and, oh, by the way, have a night of long knives and take out these people that didn't agree, he had a fair chance to build something much more significant. I mean, that's a really big kind of world historical move. And how old was he at that time? 23, maybe, if that. Yeah, no, no. It was, you know, um, yeah, maybe 22. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Got to give him some Octavian points there for that move. I sure as shit wouldn't. My own entrepreneurial career was quite the opposite. I built them to sell three to five years, put the money in the bank, on to the next ones. A very different game. What's interesting is he took those lessons um, the way he felt and used it to get founders of other promising applications. You know, I'm talking about WhatsApp and Instagram. And, you know, these are founders that didn't want to sell their uh, operation. And he got them to sell to him. So, you know, these are people who felt the same way he did, but he understood how to get under their skin and uh, to make them make the concession that he refused to make. On the other hand, he just overpaid so crazily. I mean, he paid 19% of the capital value of Facebook for WhatsApp, and it still hasn't made any money, right, or very little. I'll tell you, if you put up WhatsApp for sale – for $20 billion now, 
um, you know, there would be a lot of takers. And if you put it up, what's up for sale for a hundred billion dollars, you know, you know, you, you, I mean, if it went public, you know, you could argue it can get a hundred billion dollars. It's a, uh, one of the most successful, uh, social applications in the world. So that even at that level, uh, it's worth a lot and it's worth a lot more to Facebook because they don't have to compete against it. Exactly. That's why they actually did it right to basically co-op competition. And then Oculus, the other case, Again, $2 billion for very early, impressive, but not clear what the market was, really hasn't turned into a hell of a lot. You know, he did it by brute force. And I would say the essentially anti-competitive nature of WhatsApp made a lot of sense, but I can't fault the founders of WhatsApp at all for turning down when you're a 40 person company being paid, you know, $20 billion is ridiculous. So he just overwhelmed them. Nobody offered Zuckerberg a payout quite like that. He probably would have taken it. Maybe not. But he all, he got Instagram for a billion dollars, which was what the offer was for him from Yahoo. So that's a, that's a good example. That's much more equivalent. He found founders who weren't as Octavian as he was essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And the big, thing that he was going to concede to them was independence. You know, that they could still run it like they owned it, um, which they did for a while until he decided that those days were over. And, you know, I'm in charge now and Instagram now uh, exists to serve Facebook. Well, what you would expect eventually, right? That's the nature of selling your company. Exactly. So the founders of both WhatsApp and Instagram had to come to terms that uh, as unhappy as they were, that deal was sealed when they signed the contract. Yeah, that's why whenever I sold my companies, I negotiated my exit. I had no desire to continue to run the companies for longer than necessary. The reality is if somebody else owns it, You've lost the ability to do what you want to do. Let's go back a little bit to the late early Zuckerberg, which I found, again, very interesting and, again, very much in the spirit of the 1984 hacker ethos, which was the chapter you called Casa Facebook, where they, the whole bunch of them were living in a house and, you know, some of that I think was in that that movie also, and I loved you know character the guy who just keeps showing up in the more interesting places, Sean Parker, and his insight that it was the fact that Facebook was based on real names only, unlike the other social media platforms that made it so important. How formative do you think that Casa Facebook and Sean Parker and and that epoch was in making Zuckerberg who he is? Well, I think what happened in, in, in that period, this is, you know, uh, uh, a few months after the Facebook started, uh, the, the team moved to Silicon Valley for the summer, ostensibly. Um, and, you know, they ran into Sean Parker, who had a lot of experience, even though he's a, only a few years older than them, uh, in, in the Valley. He had been in Napster and he started a company uh, called Plaxo, which he sort of got screwed out of um, by the, the VC funders. And... Um, then they got in touch through Parker with people like Reed Hoffman and Mark Pincus. So immediately they were talking to the most important people in Silicon Valley who understood social networking. And, um, and they understood the ecosystem, how to, to get in touch with uh, funders. And very quickly, by, by the end of that summer, um, they had funding, uh, you know, from Peter Thiel, you know, millions of dollars. And uh, 
and Hoffman and Pincus put their own money in. Um, so that was important, but just as important was Zuckerberg being exposed to that growth mentality of Silicon Valley. Now, Zuckerberg, as we talked about earlier, was very big on expansion and, and, and growth, but he really saw how that could be possible um, by really getting in touch with the people who were the cutting edge of growth hacking um, in, in, in the Valley. And, and he began to think about what Facebook could be beyond a campus network. And I actually got hold of his secret notebook where he was writing his visions for Facebook in 2006 and how to change it from a campus network to something where everyone in the world would have it. Um, so I think those years and those connections were very formative for him. Yeah, I love this notebook and your references to it. Do you actually have his notebook? I don't have the physical notebook, but I have some, he destroyed it, but I, I have the copies of the pages, which he doesn't have anymore. So, you know, and I, I, I showed it to him eventually and he, he couldn't believe it because he said, wow, I'm looking at this. I, I don't have it. I, I'm sorry. I, I, just, I got rid of it. Interesting. Cause I actually have a notebook for one of my ventures. It's one of my prized possessions. It's one of those French little paper books with the flexible covers. What do you call them? I forget. But anyway, beautiful little notebook and it's absolutely full of stuff. And I still go back and look at it and go, holy moly. If I had the notebook for Facebook from 2006, it would be one of my prized possessions. Did he ever ask you for the copy? I should actually, I, I should send it to him. I, I promise I sent it to him after the book came out. I, I, I think I will do that. Yeah, if I was him, I would find that to be a, a prized possession. Let's go back to talking about the insight that Sean Parker had about real names. I was a little late to the day on Facebook. I think I joined in 2009. And previously, I had skipped Friendster, but I had a yeah, little investment in my MySpace account and what have you. And that was my reaction also. Well, when I look a look at Facebook in 2009, I go, wow, this could be a much better ecosystem because these guys have figured out how to have a reasonably strong real name ID and not, you know, the crazed MySpace thing with all anonymity that was ugly and too easily to be spammable, etc. I still believe to this day that the thing that let Facebook win at around that time, 2008, 2009, was that the choice of real name identity was really different than what most people do. Look at Reddit, for instance, again, similar time frame. You know, Reddit has always been rigorously anonymous if you want to be, Twitter the same. But real names make a big difference. You know, you and I were both on the well, and the well was famous from the very beginning. No matter how big a celebrity you are, you shall use your real name. And didn't allow the well to, to conquer the world, but it did make for a very much better ecosystem than systems built around confidentiality. How central do you think real names is to the Zuckerberg vision? Well, I think it's important. I think that one reason why they have a lot of problems now is that you know, the scale that Facebook operates, it's tough to police that, to make sure that, that everyone who is who they say they are. There's like five... Facebook admits the 5% of the accounts are bogus accounts, and, um, and they report in eye-popping numbers of attempts to create fake accounts, billions of, you know, like every quarter. Uh, so, uh, you know, and of course, a lot of those are basically just bot trying to, you know, uh, open one account after another, but uh, even 5% can cause a lot of problems. And I, I think it, it is important to know that when 
someone, you know, if, if your identity is, is, is touched, if it's who you are, uh, you're going to be generally more careful about what you post and you're going to be answerable to it when you break the rules. Facebook, I think, can be tougher about enforcing that, but I think that they don't want to have their numbers go down um, if they're too tough. Um, they don't want anyone turned away as a false positive for uh, fakery. Um, so that 5%, which is you know, probably the minimum, is a big problem for them because it, it's, it's a better community for all if everyone, you know, like, like knows who they are, right? If they were just like if, you know, uh, people walked around and you couldn't tell who they were, they might be less polite. It's like a, if you're in a small town, you know who everyone is, you know, there's a big incentive to behave better because it's your, it's your reputation. Absolutely. And I, I do find it interesting that despite the fact the, you know, essentially utterly immense financial resources that Facebook has, it has not tried to upgrade the quality of its real name identity. And in fact, this I found very curious. They've essentially, as I understand it, closed off their program of the equivalent of Twitter's blue check. Because, you know, there, there is an argument that you don't want to close the front door with too rigorous a screening. And I think Zuckerberg has said elsewhere that he's particularly concerned about the third world where people don't necessarily have firm documentary identity. You know, in the United States, easy enough have people, you know, send a picture of their driver's license or their, you know, other government ID. But in, you know, Uganda, that's not going to work so well. But however, you could have upgraded ID. Yeah. Also, to be fair, Facebook ran into a lot of problems uh, of people who had good reason not to use their real identities. You know, people who, you know, might have, you know, had sexual identity that they didn't want to share with everyone. So that was a real dilemma for them. And and they decided uh, since Facebook was so important to people, they wouldn't deny people access to that. So, you know, in, in that case, they had a genuine dilemma. Yeah, it would be good if they, it seems to me, it'd be really good to me if they would go and offer two or three levels of augmented identity, right? Maybe charge for it, charge 10 bucks to go through the, yeah, the know your customer level. Or you could, you could then set your own setting to say, hey, I only want to uh, interact with people who have been vetted, sort of like the, um, you know, trusted traveler program or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a natural thing to do, but probably their computer simulations showed that it would. Yeah, one just wouldn't wouldn't help growth. I'll tell you that. Exactly, and that's all it's about. Which is my next topic. The next kind of strikingly influential individual that Zuck hooked up with was Peter Thiel, and you tell the story that one of Thiel's guys, I think it was, or, or a friend of Thiel's, or something focused on the unbelievably amazing and rapidly growing engagement numbers of Facebook, even in those early days. And that's what hooked Teal to be the first significant investor. And as we talked about earlier, worshiping engagement in some sense became the dark hole into which Facebook has fallen or did fall. Any thoughts on Zuckerberg and Teal? Well, Teal you know, was uh, the first big investor and, you know, has been a board member, um, you know, for the Facebook's history. And I think as a trusted advisor to, to Zuckerberg and, you know, uh, he has long advocated that companies do best when they have a monopoly, um, when they corner the market. So and that, and that thinking, if it didn't influence Zuckerberg, it certainly sinks with the way Facebook has behaved over the years. 
Yeah, and I will say I know Teal just a little bit, and I would say he's another really ruthless dude. Yeah, interesting guy, interesting guy. I mean, back, you know, back when um, in those early days of Facebook, Teal was one of those people that he had a PR person who would call you all the time and say, Peter's available to comment on this. Peter's available to comment on that. Now he won't talk to journalists, but um, back then he, he was eager to get his name out. One of the things that you call out, and of course it's famous about Facebook, it's move fast and break things, but you also dig into the fact that it's not just an attitude of move fast and break things, but also that they were one of the early companies that heavily invested in what we now call DevOps, where you don't take months to bring out a feature. It takes hours to push a feature into production. If it doesn't work, you pull it back, right? Where did that ethos come from? Is that Zuckerberg himself? Was it Moskowitz, some kind of group think that realized the strategic importance of DevOps and very rapid pushing of features out? Yeah, we touched on that earlier. I mean, that was a huge advantage for Facebook in, in the early days um, that, you know, they understood, you know, from, from Zuckerberg's use of the tools and, and he taught those tools to Moskowitz who really wasn't, you know, that much of a coder when he started. He just really wanted to become part of it. And he learned it very quickly um, that this is something you could do. People didn't realize this. People who grew up in the PC age, in the Microsoft way of looking at things, that you would do an, an upgrade uh, like every year or every couple of years. And, and you can do, you know, uh, sort of incremental, you know, uh, dot upgrades, you know, like every few months. They didn't realize that it was possible to do upgrades several times a day. Uh, you could push stuff out, and the advantage is if something didn't work, if there was a bug, you could just have the, like a new version ready that would, would would refresh the next time people you know open their browser. Um, you know, uh, and this is a great advantage of not being bound by the previous paradigm that Facebook took advantage of that enabled it to move much quicker than everyone else. Yeah. And I will say my own business theory when I was a entrepreneur was I ripped off Hunter Thompson faster and faster till the thrill of speed exceeds the fear of death. Right. And it's a huge competitive advantage. And they took it to the next level. Of course, Google had also moved to that, as we know. Nothing is close. When Google started, Google was not in that uh, paradigm. You know, Google used to do like updated search engine every month when, in the early days. And they didn't have to speed it up till it got the AOL deal um, in 2002, um, I think, because you know, AOL demanded that they upgrade it more, more frequently. And then, of course, they also, nowadays, nobody sees the same Google, right? They have 100 different tests going on simultaneously. It's very, very impressive. But you're right. The Facebook probably got there with brute force and as a deep philosophical foundation before anybody else. And that's been very important. Yeah. On the other hand, it's an attitude that isn't necessarily very complementary to you know, this heightened sense of social responsibility that we talked about at the beginning. And, you know, that's that's going to be a real tension. A company whose DNA is move fast and break things, so I think they've actually changed that to something else, to now be a responsible adult where maybe that's not the greatest idea. Any sense on to what degree that tension between the original ethos and this new awareness post-2016 of social responsibility is playing out? Yeah, well, the the move fast and break things originally was meant to talk about what we were just talking about, the idea that um, you could crash the code, you know, you could take the thing down, but that's okay because, you know, in an hour we'll have a new version. Um, And it was a badge of honor among new 
uh, engineers at Facebook to actually take the system down. And that became a metaphor for moving fast in a, in a product sense uh, as opposed to a code sense. Uh, and so you could have a product that broke privacy um, and then fix it later. And, you know, you could break Myanmar and fix it later. Uh, and that, that and that's where they got into, into trouble. Uh, and now, you know, uh, just like they changed their motto, they're trying to say, well, we, we now understand that probably it's a good idea to think about the consequences of the products we put out before we put them out. So we're now looking to be proactive about what impact our products could have uh, on society. That gives me a good transition point to a next interesting topic, which is the relationship between Sheryl Sandberg and Zuck. In some ways, maybe a precursor was the fairly prescient realization by Piero Midiar that he needed a lot of help and brought in Meg Whitman at a very early stage. And, you know, although I do think the, the partnership there was more one-sided toward Meg rather than Pierre over time. But, you know, to some degree, Zuck, as you point out, also said, here's a big round circle around shit I don't want to be dealed with. And Cheryl, you deal with it. And I'll, I'll confess, in my own business career, I did the same, though not at the level Zuck did. I would always hire a very strong CFO and I'd joke with them, hey, your job is to be the king of ash and trash. Anything I don't want to deal with, you get. But I did not go anywhere near as far as Zuck did in, in pushing things over to, to Cheryl, which he did. Could you talk a little bit about how that, to the degree you were able to ascertain, how that relationship started, how it's matured, and where it's at today? Yeah, I talked about them both considerably about this, you know, about the, the decision. You know, and, and the, he brought in Sandberg. Um, you know, he was a fantastic executive at Google and um, just a brilliant business person. So she did have a role, as, as Cheryl reminded me when we talked, Thing you know, that she had a company-wide role in helping with the culture of Facebook, moving it a little off the dorm room culture and, and being, you know, friendlier to women in particular and um, and being a little more socially conscious in terms of a place to work. But they actually divided up the company. And, and just as you said, there were things that Zuckerberg wasn't so interested in. He was interested in engineering and product. And that was what was going to be what where he spent his time, and the rest of it sales, you know, lobbying in Washington, HR, uh, content moderation. That went over to the Cheryl side, uh, and that was her world uh, that, that she would run. And and there was a disincentive for her to flag problems in her world to him. She felt that she should be dealing with them herself, but there are some problems that are so important that the CEO really needs to deal with it. And the company doesn't really take it seriously until they see the signal that, wait a minute, this, this is a CEO level issue. And that's in things like what happened in the 2016 election, that this stuff was in Cheryl's world and it was not dealt with from a CEO level. And it really should have been because it turns out these are the things that had terrible impact on the company over the next few years. Yep. As it also turns out, of course, when you do that division, you miss the overlap, which is, as we talked about earlier, if you build a product, which was Zuckerberg's domain, that uses machine learning to identify cognitively button-pushing content, that's going to have policy implications, right? So you can't quite firewall those two things out. And perhaps that conversation didn't happen if they firewalled the two divisions too strongly. 
Right, right. I mean, it wasn't like there was no overlap, but like the AI people reported to Zuckerberg and they gave the tools to the data people who work for Sandberg. So um, it, it, it was, and, and it would be sold from Sandberg's organization. So there was this disconnect uh, between them. And uh, another thing that was in, wound up in Cheryl's world was security. The chief security officer reported to the general counsel who reported to the policy person who reported to Cheryl Sandberg. Well, wait a minute, your chief security officer, the person with a C in his title, you know, how many steps is away from the COO, Cheryl? And then he's a step farther, even farther away, a big gap between him and the CEO. You know, and I was shocked to find that the chief security officer never had a one-on-one with Mark Zuckerberg. Can you imagine that? I remember reading that in your book and I was utterly shocked, you know, and I was CEO of Network Solutions and then later division president for VeriSign's digital certificate division. Security was absolutely at the top of my list, right? And while we didn't call them chief security officers in those days, uh, the C titles were no long, were nowhere near as promiscuous as they are these days. Yeah, Zuckerberg cut back on C titles in, in, in recent years. He didn't want any other Cs. Well, I think that's a damn good thing. But I would certainly have a direct report who would keep me utterly apprised of security because security is the life and death of a data-driven network company, and Zuckerberg should have understood that. Where do you sense the Zuckerberg-Sandberg relationship is these days? Has anything changed? Have they learned lessons? How have they evolved in response to this much different, more adversarial public environment? Well, I think there were tensions, you know, as, as these things went you know, played out over the past few years, but they're sort of bound together at, at this point. I feel that it, I've had some super interesting interviews with Sandberg uh, in the light, latter stages of my book. And one of them I said, because Sandberg really prepares meticulously for every interaction that she has. Um, that's the kind of person she is. And, you know, uh, and I wanted to kind of get past the prep documents and really get down to the to this a, a level of, of, of candor, which she doesn't often show to outsiders. So I said, I need two hours with you, Cheryl, which isn't heard of in Cheryl's scheduling. But she finally did give me those two hours. And in the second hour, you know, we had an extraordinary exchange where she, you know, her, all her frustrations poured out about what had happened over the, over the past few years. And it was clear to me, you know, that she is a believer in Facebook. Um, she's a very exacting person. She could be tough on her subordinates, but she's toughest on herself. And she's in great pain that she didn't perform in every aspect as well as she could have during this crisis, uh, you know, or leading up to the crisis. She could should have been more on top of things to, uh, prevent stuff from happening. So this was painful there. And, and it is part of this very human story of Facebook. And that's really what I tried to do in this book uh, is tell that story of, you know, without demonizing people, but, you know, showing them as the flawed human beings they are um, who can do things, something extraordinary, like building this company that has now 3 billion people uh, using its products in the world. It's a huge percentage of the world's population. Um, yet, as well as it did a lot of good, it caused a lot of harm, and they're grappling with that. And 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 then you know they 
fomented a lot of ill will. So how did that happen? It's sort of a tragic story in, in, in a sense. And, you know, I, I hope people could like read this like the story it is and a, a very important story because Facebook is so important to us and Instagram and Facebook uh, and, and Instagram and WhatsApp, you know, they're all important. Oculus might be important one day. Um, so uh, it is you know, behind the scenes and this rich story of, you know, uh, attaining heights and paying a price for ambition, you know, maybe too much ambition. Yeah, indeed. I would strongly recommend this book to my listeners because as Stephen says, it's a story. It draws you in. It's full of, you know, human conflict, human foibles. The profiles of Sheryl Sandberg, someone I probably knew a lot less about than Zuckerberg, were very illuminating. So uh, double thumbs up on Stephen's book, Facebook. One last thing here before we go. What do you see as next in the evolution of Facebook? I mean, you've gotten your head into this more deeply than anybody. You have, you know, 40 years experience in the evolution of the technosphere. What do you think is next for Facebook as a company? Well, as, as I started talking about this book, um, you know, I had a book tour cut short by this pandemic. And it's been very interesting to see the impact of that on Facebook. Uh, weirdly, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say, you know, obviously it's a terrible thing to benefit from something that's caused like death and financial hardship on so many people. But people have turned to Facebook in a way they haven't in, in recent years. Some people who very self-consciously deleted Facebook because they thought, felt it was toxic and no good for the world are now coming back because it, it turns out to be one of the more effective tools for being in touch with people. And what I've been sort of pressing Zuckerberg to tell us is, is this going to change maybe the way he sees Facebook, the way go back to the way maybe it was before he was encouraging this virality where it would be used more to keep in touch with people for more benign uses. And Facebook itself has been more aggressive about uh, fact-checking content, policing content, and actually pushing content out to people about this virus. So it's maybe an opportunity for Facebook, just like World War II was an opportunity for the U.S. to get out of the Depression. Maybe this crisis is, is a way for Facebook to get past uh, its reputational tailspin, which nothing it had been able to do before this had uh, had any effectiveness. Interesting. That's that's hope so. I will say I found and you know I've never been a huge basher of Facebook, even though I will say over the years my engagement with public Facebook or open Facebook has declined. And but I do find Facebook very useful in its groups, right? And during this COVID nineteen pandemic, some of the groups I've been a member of, I would say, have done the best sense-making on what's really going on and what to expect of any place I've seen, better than the professional media. And I know Zuckerberg, and you mentioned it in the book, does have great hopes for groups as a way to you know, move, move Facebook to the next level. It'll be interesting to see if this COVID-19 provides a catalyst for that. Yeah, yeah, no, Mark Zuckerberg would be very happy to hear you say that because as you mentioned, you know, he made a special focus the year after the election uh, to tout these meaningful groups, as he calls them, you know, the, the groups that people join that give them valuable information or, you know, uh, speak to an important part of their identity. 
you know, at that point, like a hundred million people, which is a, like a blip in Facebook were on those groups. And he wanted a billion people to be on those, those groups. And maybe that number is rising considerably now. Yeah, I would say 90%, literally 90% of my usage of Facebook is in, you know, a handful, maybe a dozen groups that I belong to. And the quality of the discourse for a well-moderated group is just remarkably better than it is on the open Facebook. And finally, Facebook has been investing in tools for group admins, which, which make it a lot better. I'd like to see him do more of that. But for many years, the toolkit was pretty static. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for an incredibly insightful discussion here about your book. And again, I'd like to encourage my readers who are interested in Facebook to, to check it out. A book well worth reading, time well spent. Yeah, thanks. And buy it from your independent bookstore. They really hurt. Indeed. Thank you very much. And we're going to wrap it up here. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.